Welcome to episode five of the Full Count podcast. Jack Curry with David Cohn, and we're here giving you a sneak peek at our book, Full Count. If you want to pick it up, it's www.davidcohnbook.com. And David, we're up to that point in the podcast where your your baseball career ends, and that that's a hard thing for any player to adjust to. You did try a comeback with the Mets in 2003. You had a hip issue. What made you even want to try that comeback? Yeah, I, I really missed the game more than I thought I would. I know this is a common refrain you hear from lots of athletes. I thought I was going to be different. I thought I was the guy who had enough interest, had enough curiosity that I could move on to the next thing in my life, whether it was business or broadcasting or something else to do. And I realized the minute I was out of the game how much I missed the structure of the game, you know, the middle of February, it's time for spring training. Uh, during the regular season at 7.05 at night, I would look at the clock and feel out of place. And just just that that structure of a lifestyle that baseball affords was really missed. And uh, John Franco and Al Leiter called me and kind of uh, were teasing me a little bit and thinking that maybe I had something left and what do I have to lose? And you know what? I just uh, kind of on a whim almost uh, – really off the cuff, said, you know what, why not? I'll come to spring training. What's the worst thing that can happen? And I can't do it. I can't do it. I'll walk away. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something I had to get out of my system. And then once you do get it out of your system, what was the process to, to getting you to a point where you could leave baseball behind a little bit? I know you talked about uh, golf became a little bit of a savior there. Well, golf became one of your uh, – your hobbies, so to speak. Yeah, golf is so challenging, especially if, if you've never played it as a kid. And I really was almost starting from from square one and trying to learn how to play golf. And anybody who plays golf knows how difficult that can be. So it took me a lot of lessons and a lot of practice and several years just to get to the point where I could play, you know, halfway decently and, you know, at least keep score and feel like, you know, I'm making progress. Uh, the there's an old Ben Hogan adage that says anybody that anybody should be able to break 80 if you practice and you learn how to play golf the right way and you're, you're interested. And I did. I got to that point. It took me probably five years to where I finally broke 80, you know, on a legitimate course, keeping score and putting them out, as they say, and playing them down. And, you know, that was a big accomplishment. And that's kind of where I peaked. I broke 80 a couple of times. I'm kind of falling back since then. But respectable, I guess. The uh, fact that you – ventured into broadcasting. You're obviously now an analyst at the Yes Network. What has been appealing about broadcasting for you? Um, I really didn't have a clue uh, when I first started. Uh, as most players at the end of their career, you still think like a player. And, you know, the broadcast booth is like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, it's nice. I don't want to be demeaning to the job, but being a player is so much better. And we're kind of spoiled in that regard. And, I didn't really understand the business, so the first couple of years, it was kind of getting up to speed about what you're supposed to do as a broadcaster and uh, learning the rhythm and timing of things. And with each passing year, I kind of felt like I got a little bit better at it, and there were some games that were really rewarding where you felt like you know I, you added to the broadcast. There was some analysis during any particular game where I, I would ride home in my car after the game and kind of relive it and get a little high like I did when I when I played. And, and it was the first time I kind of realized that 
wow, there's there's some there's some real value here that you could add to a broadcast, and it really made me want to learn my craft a little bit more and learn how the business of putting on a game, the television side, really really works, and gave me a whole new respect for all the people in the industry, people from top to bottom, producers, directors, graphic artists, everybody. From soup to nuts, they, you know, every, all everybody's job that goes into to making a, a broadcast successful really uh, taught me a lot and really gave me a whole new respect for the business. I know you prepare a lot for each broadcast. Do you feel you have a broadcasting style or a broadcasting approach? If someone were talking about you as a broadcaster, what are some of the things you, you hope they would say? Well, I hope they just see some enthusiasm, some genuine love for pitching, you know, that when I get in my lane here and there and, and there's a well-pitched game going on that, that I can maybe take you somewhere inside the rope, so to speak, that maybe you, you wouldn't have known, maybe tell you something that you didn't know. And, and also uh, just a love for the game, just a passion for the game today as well as the game that when I played, um, appreciation for the talent level nowadays, uh, appreciation for some of the metrics and the, a new way to look at the game when you peel back a few of the layers and some of the information you have nowadays maybe make you look at the game in a, in a different light and uh, and also you know uh, pay respect to uh, to some of the old school values too you know and not, not be so diminishing uh, to the to the old school values at the expense of some of the new analytics trying to find that balance as a former player you are maybe at the forefront of embracing sabermetrics and and describing it during a broadcast where did that come from why is that something that's appealing and interesting to you yeah i think it's back to my players association days understanding the business side of baseball understanding the arbitration process i went through that a couple of times with the mets in the early 90s and my agent steve fear was very progressive at that point and using some of the best numbers we had back then and painting a different picture as to you know, how to give credit where credit is due, you know, and there's, you know, nothing against the old school stats, but there's a lot more to it than one loss record for a pitcher or batting average and RBIs for a hitter. Uh, you, you can really get some better information and, and give credit where credit is due is what it's really about. And uh, to me, that's all I try to do is try to educate where I can on some of the new, new uh, analytics, but also uh, try to show value. This is where the value is. This this particular player brings value to the table because of X, Y, and Z, and not just because of the old traditional stats. And nothing against the old traditional stats, but they're just not enough. They don't tell you enough. There's so much more to it behind the scenes that, that goes into it that I think uh, baseball fans uh, would like to know. If you were pitching in 2019, would you be as advanced with the metrics and the technology as somebody like an Adam Onovito, who we've detailed this on Yassi, he built this pitching laboratory in Harlem. He's got the high-speed cameras. He wants to know everything about his spin rate and his arm angle. Do you think you would take it to that level? I would be very interested, especially on that side of it, the high-speed cameras and uh, the analytics on that side of it, to me, are, are um, something you can, you can incorporate right now. You can get feedback right now. You can throw a bullpen session in between starts and have – the cameras give you instant feedback on spin rate and how efficient your spin is on particular breaking balls. Uh, to me, that is invaluable. I would love to have had that information. Uh, on the other side of it, the sabermetric side of it, sometimes that information can be overload for a lot of players. You know, um, if you start trying to break down mathematical formulas and put a value on something or 
get into uh, what pitch you should throw in certain counts. I think some pitchers might get over overdone in that regard or overloaded, and you'd have to be careful on that side. But as far as evaluating spin, spin on on the baseball, I, that's right in my wheelhouse. I'm, I'm enamored with, with how to spin a baseball. I was talking to Austin Romine at Yankee Stadium, and he said as a catcher, he has to be aware that after every at-bat, virtually every player is now retreating to go watch the at-bat on video. And I'm thinking as the pitcher that you were and as creative as you were and as much of a mystery you tried to be, would that have impacted you? Because, yes, they knew that you got them out with a splitter or a slider, but, I mean, they're actually looking for specific location. And what was that pitch and what were they trying to do to me? Video has, has really altered the landscape when, for you, just a little taste of it at the end of your career. Yeah, really. Uh, it, you just had to go on recall back then, you know, the, your personal history with a hitter and vice versa, that, that hitter, what, what did he remember about you and how you've gotten him out? Um, you know, certainly that plays a role. I think for pitchers it's always about adjustments, about patterns, about sequences, uh, about pitch design, you know, how, how to make your pitches more deceptive. Uh, how to trick the hitters when you need to trick them and how to be aggressive and go right after them when you need to go right after them. So to me, it was still a guessing game. It was still trying to, to read body language, trying to read at bats, swings and swing path. So now all that information is there for you to, to, uh, to kind of, uh, verify what the eye test told us back then. Now you, it's, it's kind of a trust, but verify kind of a theory. You can verify it much better nowadays than you could back when I pitched, but there's still that cat and mouse game between pitcher and hitter of, of trying to guess. Going back to being in the booth and, and the way that you announce a game, you've talked about how back with the Mets, Ojeda and Darling were, were so into the game that by osmosis you started to follow that too. And now as an announcer, you're pretty much just saying what you said in the dugout all those years ago, probably with a little more of an edit button yeah, <laughs> existing. Definitely. Um you know, that's one of the hardest things about broadcasting is learning a filter, without a doubt. Uh, and It's challenging. I've been challenged by it a few times. Uh, but part of it is passion, too. You want to be honest and be passionate, and you want that to come across on the broadcast. So, you know, that's a big part of trying to find that, you know, the, the walking that balance and that tightrope. But, yes, um, I was, you know, I was always a student of the game. I think a lot of starting pitchers are because we watch so many games, you know, I I got to pitch in 30 to 35 games a year, and uh, you know it's over 130 games I'm watching on the bench, and I had to find a way to be useful, find a way to contribute, whether that was you know, cheerleading, bench jockeying, uh, being into every pitch, um, charting pitches by hand that we used to do back then, uh, any way you could to get an edge. Um, you know, you tried to do it and you tried to support your teammates and you, the other pitchers in your rotation, too, you tried to learn from. And, and it, you know, I really felt that was so important, that synergy between the starting rotation and the catchers. And, you know, we talk about in the book, you know, pitcher-catcher relationship, the rotational relationship, too, how you feed off of each other and the diversity of styles is so important. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of underrated features in that regard. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. We're very interested in hearing your feedback, so don't forget to do that. And as we've done with the first four episodes, we're going to put out a trivia question right now. And if you are the first to answer it correctly and send the answer on Twitter to Yes Network, along with the hashtag FullCountPodcast, 
you can win an autographed copy of Full Count. We're going to have a little fun with this final question. When David Cohn is in the booth and he is describing a pitcher, a little scouting report leading up to the game, there is a way that he refers to the borough of the Bronx. The answer can't just be the Bronx. You have to tell us what he calls the Bronx. And it's a there's a little alliteration in there. That's the hint that I will give you. So send your answer to Yes Network on Twitter. The hashtag is Full Count Podcast. And getting back to something that you just said, David, the whole rotational relationship, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but is there one person that you felt, one pitcher, that you felt the most kinship with in, in your career? Or, or is there more than one? There are a couple guys who fit that bill. Uh, there, there, there's more than one, without a doubt. I think when I went back to Kansas City uh, as a free agent and the Ewing Kaufman story that we told uh, earlier in, in, in the podcast was, uh, you know, Mark Gubaza was a good friend. We, we, we came up in the minor leagues together. He's one of my first roommates, you know, two 18-year-olds right out of high school. So when I got a chance to go back and, and be his teammate again, there was a connection there because we knew each other so well from day one of the minor leagues, and we had a chance to be teammates again. And that was kind of robbed of us, robbed from us, I guess, because I was traded right before I made it to the big leagues with the Royals. So we, we had talked about even our minor league days. One day we're going to be in the rotation together with the Royals. And, you know, there's a little little sidetrack there and for the for the Mets years, but we, we got a chance to make that happen. I always felt a connection with Gooby because of our minor league days. How about in your, your Yankee years? I know in 95 you and – you and Jack McDowell were both weary and fatigued at the end of the season and kind of almost had a little gallows humor about just trying to help drive the Yankees forward as, as much as you could. Yeah, I loved Black Jack. You know, I know that he was struggling before I came over in the trade, and he actually, I think, uh, flipped the bird at the crowd that year and shaved his head in, in uh, you know, a protest of the hair policy of the Yankees. He was Black Jack was... was was a treat i thought he's a really smart guy a really reb- rebellious guy i think we really connected you know down that stretch and we both pitched pretty well down the stretch we pushed each other i think we fed off of each other and uh, you know that that was the first wild card you know the yankees in 95 were the first wild card winner and blackjack was a big part of that uh, he was a tough tough customer and, uh, you know, we really did connect in 95 down the stretch. He was also the lead singer of a band called Stick Figure. Saw, saw him perform really good band that probably should have gotten gotten more attention than it ever did. He was talented. He could play. He was really serious as, as a musician and uh, really poured a lot of his heart and soul into it. And I agree with you. I think maybe because he was a ball player, it was probably, he wasn't taken as seriously as a musician, but he was legit. David Wells is going to scream at both of us if I don't ask you a David Wells question this podcast. So how about the way that you and Wells got along with the Yankees and also the way that you kind of said to Joe Torre, all right, I realize Boomer can be a pain in the neck sometime. Why don't you just, why don't you just let me hang, hang out with him and I'll make sure that he, uh, he obeys the rules, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we almost had to make up our own rules, I guess. Uh, I, you know, there's, there's something about Boomer. You know, even though we, there, there could be some friction there, and there was between us at first, uh, that when you get to know him, you realize what a big heart he has and what a good person he really is and uh, how talented he is and how much we needed him in 1998. And he's the type of guy that needed a friend. Some some players need a kick in the butt, and some players need a pat on the back. Boomer needed a pat on the back. He needed to feel like he belonged. He needed to feel like he was believed in. and. Uh, we really developed a pretty close friendship in 1998, and uh, a lot of it was off the field. A lot of it was 
away from the field, uh, whether we were staying in different hotels together and going out and to, to have dinners together or having parties and inviting some of the, some of uh, his musician friends over. Uh, it was a great time. 1998 is a year I'll never forget, and a lot of it is because of him and because of the, the good time we had the whole year. And, uh, and I think he grew a lot that year, too, as well, because... I think he felt like he had a partner in crime, you know, and that he had somebody he could trust. And I think that's probably the first time in his career he felt that. Obviously, he had the perfect game in 98. You had yours in 99. Joe Girardi caught your perfect game. And you pitched well with Girardi. That You guys just had a rhythm. We talk about it in the book. You described it almost as a dance. The pitcher and the catcher have to dance. Why did Girardi get you so well? First of all, he's very smart, very intelligent catcher. He's very quick on his feet. He made adjustments very quickly, whether it was signal calling or reading my body language. He could look at me almost and read my body language and, and tell what pitch I wanted to throw. That, that's how much of a connection there was. And he never took anything personally. Um, you know, that's one of the things I love about the book that you brought brought to light so well, Jack, is that you know, sometimes pitchers are flaky. Sometimes uh, we lose our minds out there a little bit. Sometimes we're tough to deal with. Sometimes we can take it to a personal level that a lot of catchers would find offense with. It's a weakness that I think I try to portray in the book and that you brought it out. Uh, it's not something I look back on fondly and say I'm really proud of this behavior I had at times, but Girardi was great at never taking it personally, of reading me and saying, okay, that's just Coney. He's just having a moment you know, uh, stay with him. And I'll never forget that. Girardi was the best of that. It's almost like you have to be a psychiatrist. You have to be a great catcher, a signal caller. You have to know the scouting reports. You have to know pitchers and hitters' tendencies. And you also have to deal with sometimes in a, a child on the mound at times, like like you were throwing a little temper tantrum. There are some great Girardi mm -hmm. stories in the book. There are some great Jorge Posada stories because you guys clashed and there there just wasn't a connection there. I interviewed Posada and he talked about how you kind of intimidated him a little bit. It was the veteran pitcher versus the youngster. And he and Jeter, in subsequent years, have had some fun with you because they will say, hey, Coney, you remember the time that you aired out Posada? <laughs> yes. That's something that just never gets forgotten, that's for sure. And I love Jorge and Jeter. I mean, Jorge is, to me, a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's one of the greatest Yankee catchers of all time. He belongs in that category of Thurman Munson and all the great catchers of, of all time. Uh, you know, when you think of Yankees, Yankee greats, Posada's in there. And he, I was a veteran that had lost my skills and, and probably treated Posada unfairly because of that. And, uh, and, and I've apologized to him profusely because of that. But I think that's another great part of the book that you bring out, you know, with your writing style that shows the vulnerability of a pitcher and, you know, and also the emotional side of a pitcher and, and how volatile it can be. Does a pitcher, I think I know the answer when you're the pitcher, does a pitcher ever stop thinking about pitching? Will you be 80 years old and watching a game and thinking, wow, I'm a little surprised he went with that pitch here? No, absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, there's just so many sequences and so many things that come up and so many cues along the way that you can read that are subtle and you can just watch a game differently and you can discuss it differently with people uh, who, who understand the game or people who have experienced what you've experienced so yeah I, I see myself right to the end of watching a sequence and saying should have thrown this or could have thrown that or watch this and he's looking for this pitch and this is open and if you can execute this pitch it'll work that that will never die
David, I know you still live in Manhattan. I know you take the subway sometimes. I'm giving you a chance to do a free commercial because it helps both of us. If a guy in the subway bumps into you and says, hey, uh, Coney, I-, I saw you did this new book, Full Count. Why, why, should, I- why should I pick it up? What-, what, sh- what would your answer be? Well, my answer sh- would be, you know what, it tells the story of a kid who uh, fell in love with pitching, and it tells you his ride the whole way, and, and it's also honest. It tells you... Uh, not just the good times, it tells you the bad times. It admits mistakes along the way. It shows you the human side, the vulnerability side. Uh, you know, if there's one thing that I think I'm most proud is is, is doing this book with somebody like Jack Curry, whose who's, whose resume speaks for itself. But it was it's an honest portrayal. You know, I I I don't skirt anything. I talk about everything that happened in my career. I talk about things that happened to other people and. You know, it's a journey that uh, I think people will find kind of refreshingly honest. I think you just uh, you just dropped the mic there. We, we have mics right here. If we could drop them, we would, but we want to, you to hear the final words. I concur with everything that you said. Thanks for allowing me to be the co-pilot on that journey with you. Once again, if you want to pick up Full Count, it's www.davidconebook.com. We've got some book signings, and that's all available online, and... Please pick up this book. David really gave me a lot of great content, and I think you'll enjoy reading it if you're a baseball fan. Thanks for joining on this podcast, too. And we're going to drop the mic right now. We just don't want it to make a sound. Talk to you soon.